Jesus, you freely lived in our place, freely died for us, freely rose for us. And yes, chief of sinners, though each and every one of us are, you are the perfect one. And yet you have given everything of your perfection that you have earned to us. May your grace and your mercy and your love continue to melt our hearts. You would make us more like you. Show us that in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't yet snagged a free copy in the back in the fellowship hall, Counterfeit Gods is helping us through Lent as we're talking through a number of things smaller, much smaller than Jesus that in some way still creep their way into that spot in our heart where we end up trusting for security and hope and meaning, something other than and something much smaller than Jesus. And he absolutely wants to set you and me free of that. Well, today is probably the most challenging one to talk about, and it's one the Bible talks a lot about, and that is the most challenging counterfeit God is probably money. And now some of you are thinking, oh, I got up early for this, the money talk. (laughs) And truthfully, if, if any sermon on the topic ends with the point of, and now you should give more to the church, uh, it means the church might be making an idol out of that as well. You don't see any of Jesus' sermons ending with, or parables ending with, and he took an offering and it was better than the last one. But there's something to it, and, and here it is. All of these counterfeit or substitute gods that we're talking about are good gifts in their right place. But when they get out of place, a lot of weird things can happen. And like others, money is something we all have a relationship with, and it can do a lot of good in the right ways. And yet, it's also a spiritual issue too. You see, since you and I have a relationship with money, how, we, how I spend it, what I do with it, will also be a window into my soul and tell you something about the condition of my heart. And with that, everybody can look at somebody else and see their problem with, say, greed, but it's really, really, really hard for us to look in the mirror and see it in ourselves. And so uh, I love how the author of the book says, you know, with with, uh, lust and some other more obvious sins, somebody can know if they're having an affair with somebody else, but how does somebody know if they're being greedy? It's, it's harder to see in yourself. Well, so let's look at somebody else and see if we can learn something, and that is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, if you grew up at all around the church, you probably sang a song that had his name in it, and the one takeaway that you know from him and from that is one physical feature about him. And that, and that is, what is Zacchaeus eternally known for being? Yeah, wee little man. Short. Now, my kids aren't here so I can talk about him, right? Uh, I always tease them. It's like, you know, you can, be, uh, you can be great at a lot of sports, but you're probably not going to be a professional basketball player. Because, you know, look how tall I am and your grandparents. Just look at everybody in your life uh, and then look at everybody in the NBA. I can assure you, you can do a lot of things in life, but that's probably not one of them. Well, Zacchaeus uh, was, by historical scenario, it's probably really, really, really short. What we should remember about him isn't that. 
What we should remember about Zacchaeus is how the grace of Jesus can instantly change you. Now, for most of us, myself included, it takes a very long time for the grace of Jesus to keep working on us and keep working on us and keep working on us. And then there are these stories here and there in the Bible, and it is some other people's testimony is that in an instant, they experience the unconditional love and grace of Jesus, and their life is different. And Zacchaeus shows us that. He shows us how, how grace changes him, and then instantly his relationship to his money is different. It's in a different place in his heart. And so then he's free to give it away. But before we get there, you have to start with the story. Luke tells us Zacchaeus was rich, but Luke doesn't tell you, but you infer he is lonely. He has money and almost nothing else. He has money, but no friends. His parents are probably deeply ashamed of what their son chose to do with his life. He's not only a tax collector, which Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple, a tax collector. It calls him the chief tax collector. And he's not just the chief tax collector in one little area. He is the chief tax collector in Jericho, which is to this day known as the City of Palms. A wealthy city at a trade crossroads, wealthy from balsam trees and date palms and lots of trees. So there's, there's a lot of taxes to be collected. And when you were a Jewish person that uh, decided to do that, it meant you were betraying all of your own people to work against them for the occupying Romans. And so you had military guard and cover, but you were absolutely taking money from your people. And then you had military cover to skim far more than you're supposed to, and they wouldn't do anything about it. And so that's how you get rich, is by taking dishonestly more than you're supposed to. And so he had a lot of money and probably a lot of enemies. That is, every other Jewish person that knew him. So he had money but nothing else, and he knew it. So what's the next thing we hear and find out about Zacchaeus? He hears that Jesus is coming somewhere near, and he needs to get to him. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about what money can't do for you? It wasn't enough, right? He, he had all that he could possibly have ever wanted and then some, and he realized it wasn't enough, clearly, because he risks a lot to go find Jesus. So he hears Jesus is around, and uh, he says to himself, I, I got to get to him somehow and, and see this Jesus guy. But there's not a lot of places, if you're Zacchaeus, that you can go without the cover of a Roman guard. And so when, when you're on your own, on your own time, it's probably not a great place for him to be milling around in the crowds. It's probably uh, one uh, finally chance where people could, you know, shove him in a crowd or, or make sure he didn't have anything go easy for him. But he, he's desperate to get to Jesus. And so what we find out, he climbs up into a, a tree. And, and you can go to Jericho today and they'll, they'll tell you it's that tree. Is it? I don't know. But they'll tell you. <laughs> But he climbs up just to see Jesus. And not only that, for, for somebody who, yes, is short, who uh, has 
money and no respect to do that. It, it is absolutely a desperate measure that he's willing in some ways to, to look bad to all his peers because he just needs to get to Jesus. I think there's something there, don't you? How desperate are you and I to meet Jesus? How desperate are we that, that we would willingly uh, look funny or bad to all of our peers around us and, and whatever uh, a short person climbing a tree version of today that is, how desperate are you to get to Jesus? And so Zacchaeus climbs to see, and you get, you get the feeling he's just trying to get a glimpse of like, who is this guy? And uh, it, it's kind of like sometimes like, if you're out there on streamland, you might be checking out a church from afar, but nobody has to know you. You can just check it out and, and then see if it might be a safe place that you want to walk into someday, and we'd love to have you someday. But I, I get the picture Zacchaeus is doing that with Jesus. I'm going to get up from a distance and look, look far and, and see if I want to get closer, but I'll check it out from a distance. But then Jesus starts coming his way. Closer, closer, closer. And it's like, oh, no, he sees me. Oh, no. He keeps coming closer, and suddenly they're face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, and what does Jesus say? Zacchaeus, you are the worst person in this city, you dirty, rotten, chief tax How could you grift your people, my people, Abraham's people? Like, What is wrong with you, son? Now he says, what's cooking? And to go to somebody's house and eat was a sign of friendship. He is saying, Zacchaeus, I want to be your friend. And it says that the crowd can't believe it, right? They can't believe it. Jesus, we thought you uh, had discernment about people, but now that's all lost. We, we thought you could tell who's, who's good people. Who's, we're starting to really think about you, Jesus. How can you not know that this is the, the worst person we can think of in this whole city? And probably, you know, Jesus, if you were going to, uh, show kindness to, to the Roman soldiers. We could even find a small place of our heart to imagine that. But this guy, it's probably what they're thinking. They all grumbled. Do they know who this guy is? And Jesus goes. And he shows undeserved grace, unconditional grace. Jesus shouldn't go by the, by the merits of Zacchaeus' life, by the way he's lived his li life, by his moral character. Jesus shouldn't be there, but he goes, and he shows him unconditional grace, and just like that, Zacchaeus is changed. And there's a lot there for you and me, right? Jesus shouldn't come to my house, to my heart. I don't deserve that. And he does. And in an instant, the grace of God can change you. And for Zacchaeus, you see it. And so even though it's a you know, short story, economy of words, Luke tells us, we find out right away that the place that money held in his heart, it's no longer there, and Jesus is there. You might say, for Zacchaeus, the idol of money, whatever that held on to him, it wasn't there anymore. In an instant, Jesus showing his mercy and love and grace undeserved to Zacchaeus dislodged that idol, and there was Jesus in the center of his heart, and he trusted him. And then his hand suddenly opened, and he was generous. 
And so when Zacchaeus receives the grace of Jesus, he becomes generous. And that's one thing that happens to, to Christians is we become generous with the things God entrusts to us because we don't have to trust in those things at all. That they, we can use things as tools, but we trust in Jesus who will provide for us. And so it says Zacchaeus looks around right away and says, I think he realizes his sin that he's been doing for years and years. And he realizes everything that, that is, I'm sure he lives in the nicest house in this city. And he looks around and realizes that, that all of that is essentially stolen goods. And he says, half of it all, I'll, I'll give to the poor right away. And then he says, and then, which would be the other half, whoever I've cheated, I'm going to give four times back. Now, in the Old Testament, it does talk about if you have cheated somebody and, and you're making restitution, uh, it, it's much less than that. I forget the number offhand. Looked it up this week. Uh, and he's going way beyond that, way generous, saying, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give them four times that amount back. Now, Zacchaeus is not trying to get on Jesus' good side. He's not trying to earn Jesus' favor. He's not, uh, he's not saying, okay, I'll do the, I'll, in good faith, I'll say, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll give all this money away because I think that's what you want me to do. Uh, and then maybe you'll receive me, accept me, ask you to, me to follow you. That's not what happens, is it? Jesus doesn't say if. Jesus doesn't say, if you do this, if you keep doing this, salvation will come to your house. You will be accepted by God. No, he says salvation has come to this house. And everybody sees the fruit of grace. Jesus gives his grace to Zacchaeus, and it changes his heart, and it changes his life. And for him, when Jesus took the throne of his heart, money had to move over and go somewhere else. And then it was a, a tool to give away and to do good with. The gospel is not if you do this God will in turn do something nice for you. That's not what happens. The gospel is because Jesus. Some of you confirmation students out there know I, we talk about this all the time. The gospel is this. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, my sins are forgiven and I'm a child of God forever. And I do. We grill that every I can tell you, every, almost every week, better do it today since I forgot. The gospel is not if you do this, then good things happen. It's because Jesus, because Jesus shows up, finds Zacchaeus, a chief text. He could have sang the hymn very well, chief of sinners. And Jesus shows up and says, I want to come to your house. And the rest of the story, I'm going to bleed and suffer and die for you. And his heart melts. That's the same offer Jesus makes to, to you and me. He comes in, shows up, and gives you and me undeserved grace that you and I don't deserve. The gospel is not if, it's because. It's because Jesus lived perfectly the life you should have lived, died the death you and I deserved to die, it bled for you, sacrificed all for you, gave all for you, because Jesus, God loves you. And that will change you. 
You and I won't be the same person once we've experienced the grace of Jesus. And with that, our relationship to money won't be the same anymore. Now, to the topic that Zacchaeus definitely dealt with, money is an easy substitute God. And if you read many Christian writers over hundreds of years, they often point to Money as being maybe the, the biggest counterfeit God or substitute God or idol or thing we can look to other than God to trust. And so if you read Martin Luther in his large catechism, which is an explanation for parents and people are going to teach the small catechism, talking about the first commandment, fear, love, and trust in God above all things, he just says right away, money is the biggest idol that people will struggle with. And I had to pause and think, Okay, he wrote that 500 years ago, and him and probably everyone else he knew, the amount of wealth they had pales in comparison to what I have now. Uh, they probably would look at almost anybody in middle America and, and think, wow, you're all wildly wealthy. Hmm, I should think about that. It can easily be a substitute God. That means we can think just a little more will solve all our problems. And so, 500 years ago, Martin Luther's writing that to people that, by modern standards, are quite a bit poor, saying, uh, the human heart says, if I just had more, everything would be better. Now, yes, money is God's tool in the right place to do good, and uh, one of the biggest blessings to the kingdom of God is people who ha have earned money uh, graciously, kindly, honorably, and are generous with it. And if uh, you are a good, hard-skilled worker and your company pays you well, th that's a good thing. And you should feel appreciated because money is a sign of, of thankfulness for good, hard work. It, it's not the thing. It's our relationship to it. And so we could make a list of all the good things money can do. It can alleviate poverty. It can uh, buy food. And food, especially for, for people that need it, uh, it can... Obviously, you have housing and you pay for it with money or, or it can buy you a car and transport so that you can go and serve other people. There, there's a lot of, of good it can do. It's a relationship to it when it creeps up. And so the question that I ask myself all the time is this. What does money do for you? What does money do for you? And this gets us into something that we'll unpack in the coming weeks, and that is there are what you might call surface idols, the thing you can point to and put your finger on, like uh, love and money and power and success. There are those things, and money you can like point to dollar bill and say, there it is. But then usually below that, there are other things deeper into our hearts that are harder to find. And so you might call those hidden idols. So... It's not enough just to say, well, I struggle with, uh, you know, money or, or love or, or power. That might be true, but don't stop there. What, what's, what's lurking under, why do you want more and more and more money? Is it uh, so that you can do more and more good and serve other people? Or is it for some other purpose? So the question for me is, what, what does money do for you? And that might tell you more about your heart. Consider these two people. Harold does not spend a dime that he doesn't have to. 
He would be described by his, his family as uh, thrifty and miserly. Uh, he wears the same old clothes for years, lives in the same old house for decades, even eats old food on occasion. <laughs> Everyone thinks he's cheap, but the bank account zeros don't seem to stop. And growing up poor is what made Harold afraid of not having enough. And so he piles away and away and away for a rainy day, but just keeps piling and piling money away at the expense of everything else, even relationships around him. So for him, having is money is money is actually a security that he can trust in. So that when bad things happen, I can trust that. He doesn't spend it, but he sure loves it, and it has a hold on his heart. Now, take somebody else. Call him Hank. Hank, doesn't, Hank spends, see, Harold doesn't spend. Hank spends a lot. And it's because he never felt accepted in school. But when his sales career took off, he realized, oh, People started to invite him to to parties and to places he never dreamed of earlier in life. And so having money opened social doors that had never been opened to him before in his life. And so uh, working hard and, and earning more money gives him access to this life of acceptance that he never had. And so we can easily spend on lots, uh, lots of money on nice suits, nice cars, nice dinners, you name it. And then certainly has to overwork by a long shot to keep this lifestyle going. But he might think quietly to himself, it's a small price to pay for finally being accepted. So that's two people, one who spends, the other saves. But Money has got a grip on them for very different reasons. So on the surface, you might say this is a a, a money idolatry, but there's something deeper going on. And it's usually the case for you and me. Whatever it is we wrestle with and sometimes are tempted to trust in gives us an illusion. An illusion of safety or security or an illusion of acceptance or, or maybe even power or maybe even Success. Do you believe that none other than the grace of Jesus Christ melts all of that and gives you in its place what your heart has truly been longing for? Do you know that it's only by Jesus who lived for you, died for you, rose for you, loves you unconditionally, forgives every last one of your sins and my sins, greed included, and gives you a new heart. Do you believe that, that Jesus wants to be your security, that you trust in daily? Do you believe that Jesus is your peace? And do you believe that Jesus, by giving you freely, forgiveness, a new heart, new life, that he is what your heart has been looking for, and at times grabbing other things to put in its place. Do you believe that Jesus himself became absolutely poor for you? Second Corinthians says it this way, you know, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor, so that by, because of what he's done, We who are poor become rich. That means Jesus, eternally begotten from the Father, second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, Jesus had eternal riches far beyond anything of our wildest dreams on earth in the paradises of heaven. Why on earth would he be born as a man on earth? 
Jesus became absolutely poor so that you would become rich. That is, be together with him for eternity. And when Jesus is your peace, and when Jesus is your security, and when Jesus is your life, when Jesus is in the Jesus place in your heart, well, everything else gets put in its right place, and they become tools for Jesus to use. 